Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, to 1 Kings chapter 18 for our time together today. I realize that many of you perhaps uh, weren't here on this specific Sunday, but a little over a month ago, my family and I were on vacation, and Brother Richard Seafried, one of our deacons here in the church and a former pastor, um, he stood and he preached God's word, and he preached a sermon that covered basically three seasons of Elijah's life and ministry. Uh, I, like many of you, was on vacation on that Sunday, and my family and I were driving, and as we were, I was listening to the service from my my cell phone. If I had to have my cell phone on the dash of the vehicle, don't tell the state troopers, but I was watching and listening to, uh, to the message that God had that day. And that message so encouraged me and challenged me that we're kind of taking a, kind of pushing pause for a moment as a church and slowing down and focusing a little further on what he impacted in one message. And we're looking at it really over the course of four weeks. And that is this, we're learning the importance of trusting God. And specifically today, trusting God's power. This morning, as we open God's word to 1 Kings 18, we are reminded that Elijah knew something about God because Elijah knew God personally. Already in this pastor scripture from 1 Kings 17, 18, and then in the 19, we find that Elijah is, is experiencing firsthand the power of God at work in his life. Maybe you remember the story that in 1 Kings 17, a few weeks ago, we saw where the Bible tells us that God's people were not really living for him. Now they were saying that they loved him. They were saying that they were living for him. They were saying, oh, we still worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, the true God of heaven. But in their actions, they were saying something very differently. In their profession, they claimed to love God and follow him, but in their actions, they were actually bowing down to a false god known as Baal. Now, if you're a Hebrew scholar, you know that the actual pronunciation is Baal, but I'm a Southern scholar and it goes by Baal, okay? And so what was happening is they said, yes, we love God, but in their actions, they were bowing to a false god. Well, God raised up a prophet by the name of Elijah and he told Elijah, now go to King Ahab and confront Ahab. Elijah did in 1 Kings 17. He went to Ahab and he said, Ahab, you and the people of Israel have sinned against God. God wants to be worshiped alone as God and you are bowing down to other false gods. And as a result of that, God is bringing judgment on the land. And until I say so, there will not be rain on the earth. Part of God's judgment is that he was bringing a drought. The drought would lead to famine. The famine would lead to starvation. And God was severely judging the people. Well, the Bible tells us that God told Elijah immediately to get out of Dodge, get out of town, and go to the brook Cherith. Even in the midst of a famine, when many of the people of the world were starving, the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his power in Elijah's life by providing for him in a miraculous way. Even against their very nature, the Bible tells us that God commanded the ravens of the air to take food to Elijah twice a day, meat and bread. There at the brook, Elijah would have water. And there we know by scholars over a year, God miraculously showed his power by providing for Elijah at the brook Cherith. Then one day suddenly, like we saw last week, the brook dried up. 
Well, Elijah didn't fear. He didn't panic. He didn't get anxious. Instead, he looked to God and he waited on God for the word. And finally, the word came. God said this, Elijah, get up. I want you to go 100 miles to the region of Zarephath, a Gentile pagan land, but even there, I'm still God and I'm still in control. When you get there, here's what you're going to discover. I have already commanded a widow there to take care of you and provide for you. Elijah goes, the Bible says, to Zarephath, 100 miles on foot. He gets to Zarephath and immediately he sees a widow. He sees a woman there picking up sticks. And so he, he asks her, ma'am, excuse me, excuse me could you get me a glass of water? I'm really thirsty. The Bible tells us immediately she, she said she would, so she left to go get the glass of water. And as soon as she went to get the water, he spoke again and he said, actually, can you also bring me back a bread cake? A biscuit, if you will. It's a single piece of bread. Would you bring it back? I'm hungry. And then she told him her situation. Well, sir, I would do that, but I only have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm gathering sticks to take it home and make a fire. And I'm going to make one bread cake for my son and I, and we're going to eat of it. And that's all we have left. And because it's all we have left, once we eat of it, we're going to starve and we're going to die. I can't bring you a bread cake. Elijah then looked at her under the direction of God and said, I'll tell you what, go make a bread cake for me first and then make one for you and your son. That was crazy. That didn't make sense. But here's the reality. The reality is Elijah knew that the God that took care of him at the brook Cherith for over a year would also take care of this widow and her son. He knew that the God that was God at the brook was also still God in the pagan land of Zarephath. And so the Bible says she agreed to do it. She went and made a bread cake. She made it for Elijah. And much to her amazement, when she went back to her cupboard, when she went back to the bowl, there was still a little bit of flour and there was a little bit of oil. Would you believe every single day she went back to the pantry, here's what she found. Every time there was just enough flour and just enough oil for her and her son and Elijah to eat. Scholars tell us today that he was there at the widow's house being provided for for at least a year up to two years. In other words, what I want you to see as we get into this passage of scripture today is this. Because Elijah had already met God Elijah had seen God's power on full display personally in his life. But please don't miss this today. When God reveals his power, he does so to reveal himself to man so that we respond by glorifying him. God's demonstration of power in our life when he works and moves in an extraordinary way, when he convicts us of sin, when he provides for us in a time of desperation, when he encourages us in a time of sorrow, when God takes care of us, when he demonstrates his power in our life, he does so to reveal his person to us so that ultimately we respond by bringing glory and honor to him. This morning in 1 Kings chapter 18, I believe we're gonna discover several key truths about God. The first key truth that we see about God in 1 Kings 18 is this. There is only one true living God. Now, there are many gods that people will worship. There are many gods that people will bow down to. There are many gods that people will pursue and make idols in their life. But there is only one true living God. The second truth that we learn about God in 1 Kings 18 is this. We discover that the true living God can do anything that with him all things are possible. Reminded the illustration of a little boy one day that was going on a 
plane flight with his parents. He was so excited, and he, he got into the airplane. And as he got into the airplane and looked out the window, he got a little nervous. So his, his parents put him on the aisle to sit down. And to distract him, his mother gave him a, a little sheet of paper. It was a handout that he had gotten at church the week before that talked about the power of God. And so he sat down in the seat and began to read. And about that time, there was another gentleman that walked down the aisle of the plane and sat on the opposite seat of, across from him, just across from the aisle. And that man happened to be a pastor. That pastor, in his time, was sitting there, looked over at the little boy and realized he was reading something about the Bible. And he, he saw the statement, the power of God. And so the pastor thought he'd have a little fun. He looked over at the little boy and he, he pulled out from his pocket a pack of gum. And he said, son, I tell you what, if you can tell me something God can do, I'll give you a piece of gum. That little boy thought that was a great offer, but without batting an eye, he reached into his backpack. He pulled out a mega huge pack of gum and he looked back at that pastor and said, mister, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you the whole pack of gum. You know what that little boy was understanding was the God he was reading about, it literally is capable of doing anything. The only thing God can't do are the things by his character he has said he will not do. But apart from that, he can do all things. He can provide for Elijah at the brook Cherith by the ravens. He can provide for the widow by making sure there's flour and oil in the jar. And God can do all things. The third truth we learn about God in this passage of scripture is this. We discover that God demonstrates his power in our lives that we might worship him and follow him as the Lord of our life. Let me say that again. God demonstrates his power in our lives that we might worship him and follow him as the Lord of our life. So here are the two questions to consider for us today. The first question is this. How has God demonstrated his power in your life? How has God demonstrated his power in your life? Has it been through the way that he has provided for you? Has it been in the ways in which he has blessed you beyond what you could have ever imagined? Has it been in the way that he's brought relationships into your life that have encouraged you and built you up and helped to mold you and shape you be the person you are today? Has it been that in a time of grief and sorrow, God gave you a, a joy and a peace that you couldn't explain? Has it been that when you were lost in your sins, God convicted you of sin and convinced you of his love for you and convinced you that Jesus is the only way to heaven and you called upon him and in that moment, he saved you and changed you and gave you a new life? How has God demonstrated his power in your life? But it brings about a second question, doesn't it? And that is this. How have you responded to God's proving of himself to you? So you see, when God provides and when God moves and God demonstrates his power in your life, when God brings about those things, he does so so that we would respond in a way that would bring glory and honor to him. First Kings 18, that is exactly what we see. I want to ask you if you're physically able to stand to your feet, would you do so? As we focus on the importance of trusting God's power, we're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip all the way down to verse 17 and read through verse 39. Here's what the Bible says. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So remember, Ahab's been looking for Elijah for three years to kill him. Verse two, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Skip down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, 
but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me all of Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, listen to this question. This is the question of the morning. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Verse 21, but the people did not answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, verse 22, I alone am left, the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, and, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood. I will not put a fire under it. You will call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, amen. This is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many. Call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. They took the ox which was given them and they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. They leaped about the altar which they made. came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice. Sure, he's a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice. Listen to their desperation. And they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces. He laid it on the wood. He said, now fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and it also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel that I am your servant and I've done all things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God is God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder of your power today. God, I pray today that you would help us to realize firsthand that you have demonstrated your power and your presence in our life, not merely so that we would be wowed, but so that, Father, we would worship you and that we would follow you as the Lord of our life for all of our life. Would you be glorified today, I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. God bless you. you. May be seated this morning. Trusting God's power. As we pick up God's story today, God's word here in 1 Kings chapter 18 in the life of Elijah, we see immediately that Elijah is being called to go stand before King Ahab once again. Ahab has been looking for him for three years. Ahab has been wanting to, to get rid of him. And yet here is Elijah. And Elijah, he's sensitive to the Lord's leading. He stands firm upon the word of God. And he realizes no matter how difficult the task, he's called to be a servant of God. And being called to be a servant of God, he does exactly what God says, even though this could cost him his life. He goes to Elijah, or goes to Ahab, and immediately we find something interesting. Immediately Ahab says something to Elijah. Here's what he says. Oh, here you are, you troublemaker. Here you are, you who troubles Israel. The fact of the matter is, Ahab blamed Elijah for the drought. Ahab blamed Elijah saying, this drought is your fault. We're starving because of you. Look at what you've done, Elijah. Simple reality is this. There was a drought because the people had sinned against God. There was a drought because God's people had been bowing down and worshiping a false God. They had been turning their attention away from God. I want you to know this morning, it's easy for us at times to get upset and to get mad when we hear the truth. But the fact of the matter is God had called Elijah to proclaim the truth. In fact, it's interesting when you study all the prophets of the Old Testament. I'm, my Devo time right now, I'm reading through Ezekiel. You begin to quickly find the people didn't like the prophets of God. They didn't like to hear the truth of God's word. Warren Worsby says it this way, the human heart would rather hear lies that bring comfort than truths that bring about conviction and cleansing. And as a result of that, many people, when truth is spoken, those who are not living according to the truth are easily offended and quickly deflect. So here's Elijah. Elijah says, I am not the one who troubled Israel, Ahab, but you and your father's house have. And here's how you've done it. You have brought in a false, dead, pagan God known as Baal, and you have brought in 450 false prophets throughout the land, and as a result, God's people are divided in their affection. God's people are divided in their pursuit. God's people are divided and distracted in their worship. Elijah looks at Ahab and says, Ahab, there's going to be a contest. Get all the prophets of Baal together. Get all the prophets of the Asherah together. Get them all together. Tell all the people at Mount Carmel, that's the place to be. As the scene unfolds quickly this morning, I want us to make four observations from this passage of Scripture in the life of Elijah. The first thing I want you to see this morning is God's clear demand. God's clear demand. Please understand what's happening in this moment. When Elijah gets the people of God together, he gets the false prophets of Baal together, he gets Ahab together, he gets them all together on a mountain known as Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was an interesting location. Mount Carmel was right on the border between God's people where they were dwelling and the land of Phoenicia. Now think of this for just a moment. God's people, God had a covenant relationship with him. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had been blessed already in so many different ways. And yet here was the, the Phoenician region, and the Phoenician region is where the God Baal came from. In fact, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, grew up in Phoenicia. Her father, Ithbel, was the king, and he was the one that had led the people to worship this false god. When Elijah brings them to Mount Carmel, here's what he's doing. He's bringing them to a dead end, if you will. 
God through Elijah was bringing them to a place where they're going to get to the top of the mountain. They could look over and see God's place and the way he was blessing, or they could look over and see the place where God wasn't blessing. They could see the false God Baal where he was worshiped. And God is bringing them to this place where they have to choose. For many of us today, God's bringing us to a place where we have to choose. It's like a dead end. We can go right or we can go left, but only one way is the right way. I remember years ago when I was at Liberty, I believe I was a sophomore in college at the time, I got a phone call from a student pastor in Georgia to which he told me that their whole student ministry was traveling up north to Flat Top, West Virginia for a snow uh, retreat, like a snow skiing retreat. I had never snow skied in my life. I grew up in the deep south, but the thought of being there was exciting. And they asked me, would you come and would you speak to our students like two or three times throughout the day? And I was absolutely, this sounds great. This is so, this is so old and I'm so anxious. This was before the days of Google Maps and smartphones, okay? And I remember him giving me the directions and him giving me lots of ideas. And I made my trip from Lynchburg towards Flat Top, West Virginia. I'd never been in the mountains of West Virginia. And as I'm driving, driving it's getting dark and it is, the snow is already just coming down. Being from Alabama, I had never driven in snow in my life. So I remember driving and I remember praying like, God, you got to help me find this place. I have no idea where I'm going. And I remember coming to the top of this hill. And when I came to the top of this hill, I was literally at a dead end. I could go right or I could go left. Two choices. And I remember that moment reasoning within my logic. I bet left is the way to go. And so I took a left and before I knew it, I was going around these hills and I found myself literally at the bottom of this valley where there was a truck stop and I realized then I was not in the right place. I tried to go back up that hill three times and I could not make it. So that night, I got to sleep in my car in the back of this truck stop in West Virginia, praying that God would spare my life for the evening. The next day, I found where I was going and I was fine and it was a great weekend. But what I'm saying to you is this, God was bringing these people to this kind of dead end experience where they had to choose. So here's what the Bible says in verses 21 to 22. Elijah asked the question, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? How long, people, will you hesitate between two opinions? You can imagine the scene as all of Israel is a buzz. Hey, Elijah's been missing for three years. The, the guy that Ahab's been trying to get rid of, and he's back. And he's publicly rebuking Ahab. And he's calling for a contest on the mountain. This was like must-see primetime television. Everybody's coming together to see what's going on. And when they get there, Elijah says this, there's a word from God, and that word is this, how long will you wait? How long will you be divided in your attention? How long will you be divided in your affections? How long will you claim to worship God and yet live like the devil? How long will you be divided in your two opinions? Elijah then says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But quit straddling the fence. Quit playing both sides. Quit saying you love God and living like you don't. Quit saying that God is the Lord of your life when in reality you're truly living for yourself. Quit saying one thing and living differently. Be all in or be all out. But if God is God, follow him. I'm reminded this morning that Jesus himself not only gave us that demand, but Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The question is this. 
who's our master? Our master ultimately is whoever and whatever we are following and living for. When Elijah asked that question, how long are you going to halter between and hesitate between these two opinions? Please understand what was happening in that moment is that the Jewish people were claiming to love the one true God, but they were compromising by bowing down to a false God. They claimed to love God, but in their conduct, they said something very, very differently. Because for many years, there had been a great harvest in the land and great produce in the land. They had begun to give their praise to Baal. Oh, Baal, Baal, the God of fertility, the God who sends rain upon the earth, the God who gives fruit to the womb, the God, their, their God had blessed them. And so they began to worship Baal and say, thank you for the crops and thank you for the rain and thank you for our children. The worship of Baal in that day was associated because of the fertility aspects of it was associated, frankly, with all sorts of sexual perversions that happened at the temple of Baal. Not only that, since Baal was the fertility god, many people worshiped him by sacrifice, by bringing their firstborn son as a human sacrifice. This was happening amongst God's people. The fact of the matter is this morning, you can always tell a lot about a culture by how they treat children and by how they view sex. That, that should be a warning for us in America. That, that should be a, a warning for us in our own homes and lives. The reality is that's what was happening. And what God is looking at them and saying is, listen, I am God, I am the Lord, I am the one true God. And as a result of that, make up your mind, follow me. Please understand, God had already given words of instruction to his people. Exodus chapter 20, verses two through five, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath it or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. God had given them instruction. By the time Elijah comes along, they've begun to compromise. They've turned to Baal. They've worshiped Baal. They've bowed down to him. They've sacrificed to Baal. They, they've worshiped in all sorts of perverted ways. Maybe you're here this morning and say, oh, pastor, man, that, it's 2020. That, that's strange. That's like crazy talk. That would never happen in our day today. The fact of the matter is, is that it might seem old and barbaric to you, but our culture is far more like the people of God in that day than we care to admit. Yes, we are opposed to human sacrifice, we would say, because it's so barbaric and so wrong, and yet at the same time, many think nothing of abortion. We laugh it off like it's no big deal. We vote for candidates that openly approve it. Most would scoff at the idea of sexual perversion in a place of worship, and yet the Bible says as a Christian, our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in our own lives, we justify and excuse pornography. Lustful thoughts that we meditate on, sexual experiences and encounters that are not with our spouse, and we act like it's no big deal. Oh, we would never make a man-made idol. Surely we would never take some object and bow down to it, but we have no problem putting other things, family, sports, hobbies, careers, money over God's place in our lives. We may not bow to a physical idol per se, but we're continually tempted to bow to the invisible idols of desires and materialism, professional success, physical appearance, political perspective, reputation, and the list goes on. Oh, that's so, that's so, that's so long ago, Pastor. Yes, at the same time, the heart of man is still desperately wicked. 
And we still struggle with the temptation to turn to other gods, even if that other God is ourself. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. It's like Elijah's in this moment saying, guys, make up your mind. If the Lord is God, then follow him. I think one of the most sobering and sad statements of the entire Old Testament is found in verse 21. Listen to the summary. But the people did not answer him a word. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You are God's chosen people. God has been so good to you. God has provided for you. He has loved you. He has promised you a Messiah that's gonna come to take away the sins of the world. Look at all that God has done for you. And in this moment of being challenged to consider who is truly God, here's what they do. They stand in silence, not knowing what to do. It's in that moment I want you to see, secondly, man's common deception. I've got to move quickly, but here's what happens. The Bible says that Elijah looks at them, silence amongst the crowd, and Elijah says, all right, here's what's going to take place. Right here in front of everybody, right now, we're going to settle it once and for all. We're going to have a contest of sorts. There's 450 false prophets of Baal. I stand here alone as the prophet of God. They're going to make an altar. I'm going to make an altar. They're going to prepare an ox. I'm going to prepare an ox. They're going to pray to their God. I'm going to pray to my God. And the singular God that is the true living almighty God of heaven, the true God, here's what will happen. He will send fire from heaven. And when the true living God sends fire, we will know that he is the Lord God. People say, amen. We agree. The Bible tells the verses 22 through 29, that's exactly what happens. So I want you to see a few things about the way that the false prophets of Baal responded to their false God. First thing I want you to see is they were confident. They were confident. They did not have a lack of confidence. In their mind, if Baal could send rain from heaven, then surely he could also send fire. If Baal could accept a sacrifice via fire of humans, then surely he could send fire to consume his own offering. And so in their mind, they were confident. So when the people said, yes, we agree, the prophets of Baal, they're absolutely, they're excited. They're convinced that Baal is the living God. Not only that, they had faith. The Bible says they began in the morning, most likely around 9 a.m., and they began to pray. Oh, Baal, would you send fire? Oh, Baal, would you do this? Oh, Baal, just as you've sent rain all these years before, would you send fire now? Oh, Baal, our hope is in you. The Bible says they prayed, listen to this, from 9 a.m. to noon. Now, let me ask you a question. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when was the last time you prayed from 9 a.m. to noon? Or at any three hours combined throughout the day? What I want you to see here is they had great faith. They were zealous about their religion of Baal. Not only that, they were passionate. The Bible says there was no answer, there was no word. So what do they do? They began to jump up on the altar. I I mean, literally, if I was jumping up and down on the stage, and some think I do, but I really don't, y'all would probably think I was crazy. What what has gotten into him? He's lost his mind. He's definitely from Alabama. You know, like y'all would think I was absolutely nuts. Here's the deal. They didn't care what anybody thought of them. They didn't care anybody's evaluation of them as they worshiped their God. 
They're just zealously and passionately trying to get their God's attention. So much so that Elijah begins to mock them. Well, your God is a God, but maybe he's just busy. Maybe he's distracted. Maybe he's taking a long journey. Maybe he's asleep. Elijah's kind of, I like Elijah. I'd have to probably be doing the same. I like, he's kind of giving them a gift of sarcasm right here as he's mocking them a little bit. And, but we also see they were desperate. They were desperate for Bill to answer. They take their swords, they take their knives, and the Bible says they begin cutting themselves. They're thinking, if, if Baal is pleased by all these other sacrifices, then maybe if I do something sacrificial to myself, that will get his attention. That will appease the God. And then he'll send fire. And so they're doing all these things, cutting themselves, and they're jumping, and they're dancing, and they're praying, and they're crying out to their God, oh, would you hear us? But here's the reality. The reality is they could have prayed for the rest of their life, and there would have been no answer. You know Why? Because the false god they were crying out to was a dead, lifeless, worthless, man-made god. They were sincere. They were zealous. They were passionate. But they were sincerely wrong. The fact of the matter is this morning, there is one true living God who has demonstrated himself, who has rather, who has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who came and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again from the grave to prove that he's the Lord God over anything and over everything. There is one true living God and yet there's many people throughout the world that worship all sorts of gods and all sorts of deities and all sorts of things. But there's only one true living God. Their worship in this moment was worthless because of who they had focused it on. Please understand this morning, your faith is only as solid and as sure as the person in which it's focused on and founded in. You can put your faith in all sorts of people. You can put your faith in all sorts of movements. You can put your faith in all sorts of religions. But I'm telling you this morning, your faith is only as solid and as sure as the person in which it is founded and focused. In this case, they're focused on Baal. I want to remind you this morning, you can put your faith in pastors, parents, or special someones in your life, but they will fail you. You can put yourself on the throne, living your life for yourself, but I'm telling you, you'll find yourself disappointed. And as we see of the prophets of Baal, we even find them condemned. I call this man's common deception because so often we too are quick to put our faith and our focus in all sorts of things. What God is wanting us to see is that he alone is the true living God of heaven and he should be worshiped and followed as such. Third thing I want you to see this morning is God's commanding demonstration. Here the people have desperately cried out to Baal, asking for Baal to prove himself and there's been no response at all. Baal nor any other false god, nor any other idol will ever save your soul and satisfy you. It will always leave you in the end lacking and wanting and without turning to Christ, condemned. Baal's altar that they've been working on and jumping on and praying at is now sitting there as a symbol of a lost cause, a dead, worthless effort of religion. Elijah then builds, rebuilds the altar of the Lord. He takes 
12 stones, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is important because politically at that moment, Israel was not unified. But Elijah saw it in that moment as God saw it, as still his people. And so he takes the the 12 stones and he puts them together. And then he takes the, the wood and he puts it all there at the altar. And then he takes the ox and he prepares it and he lays it upon the altar. And then just to prove that God alone is God, here's what he says. Hey, take those barrels of water, dump the water on the altar. He digs a trench, a deep trench, by the way. And then he says, now go fill them up again in the middle of a drought. Go fill up the barrels of water. They go, they pour the water again. Do it again. Three times, 12 barrels of water. I'm telling you, this thing was so soaked that the trench was filled with water. Now, I am not a camping expert. But going from growing up in Alabama, I can tell you this. It is difficult to get wet wood to burn. It is. But Elijah's got this thing completely soaked. And in the midst of that, Elijah begins to do something. I think in this moment, what Elijah's bringing them to is he's wanting them to know all these things you've done to get Baal's attention, all these things you focused on, all these things you live for, all these things that were worthless and useless, and in a moment, he's going to demonstrate to them exactly what the true living God of heaven can do. Cause me to pause for a moment. Cause me to pause for a moment to ask this question. What is it that we're really living for today? In in what ways is our life today being spent, lived for those things which are temporary and worthless in light of eternity? The fact of the matter is this morning is that many of us spending our lives doing the same thing that these false prophets were doing. I've been a pastor for 17 years. I'm grateful for that. In 17 years of ministry, there are many joys and many excitements and celebrations that you get to celebrate as God is working in people's lives, but there are also some times of sorrow and grief that you have the opportunity to minister to people. When I was in Christiansburg, I'd been there for about three years, and I'll never forget one day meeting a gentleman who was the director of a local funeral home. And I remember him coming to me and saying, hey, uh, he'd heard, he'd been to a service one day, and he said, I want to ask you to pray about something. I said, sure. He said, listen, he said, on a regular basis in the funeral home, we have a family that comes. They, they don't know a church. They don't know a pastor. It's clear that you know, there may not be a relationship with God or even an understanding, but they ask for a minister to serve at a funeral. Could I call on you sometime to serve in that way? And I said, absolutely, sure. And so I gave him my, my number, and sure enough, it wasn't but a few weeks later, he called. And here's what I'm saying to you is that in 17 years of pastoring, I've been in a lot of settings where I have preached the funeral or memorial service for people that have passed away. Oddly enough, in those types of moments, what ended up happening in Christiansburg is that just about every single month, I received a phone call, Pastor, would you come and minister to this family? I've probably preached more funerals for people that I had never met than people that I've actually known because of that. The reason why is because I found it to be an incredible opportunity to show people the love of Christ in a very difficult time. It was also an incredible opportunity because at death, people often begin to think about life beyond death and the things that matter for eternity. I cannot tell you when I'd get that phone call from the funeral home, they'd give me the name of a family member. I would call that family member and I would schedule a time to sit down with them. In nearly every situation, I would sit down and I'd begin talking and I would say, tell me about your loved one. Tell me about your husband. Tell me about your wife. Tell me about your son. And more often than not, here's what I'd get. Oh, my husband, man, he, you know, 
He was such a good man. He'd give you the shirt off his back. Oh, my husband, man, he loved to bowl or he loved to fish. He, he spent his weekends on the softball field. He was so good. He could build anything with his hands. Oh, my, 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 my son, my, man, he was such a sweet kid. He, he made straight A's all the way through school. That'd be a miracle today, but that's what we'd have people would say. He, 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 did, he, had such a, he had such a sweet little girlfriend his senior year, and she was so kind. My wife, oh, man, she could cook. She loved her some pioneer woman. Please understand, there's nothing wrong with those things, but listen to me. If when your life comes to the end, that's all that can be said of you, I would sit at those tables for an hour. We would talk, and I'd try to learn, and I would speak, and I'd speak words of Scripture and point them to the gospel. But it was clear, loud and clear, there was no evidence of the gospel. There was no evidence of turning to Jesus. There was no evidence of believing in God. Instead, what there was evidence of was of life lived for things that didn't matter in eternity. God's commanding demonstration takes place as Elijah is now at the mountain. He has prepared the altar. The ox is there. Water is literally filling the trenches and here's what Elijah does. Notice the scripture. The Bible says in verse 36, Elijah didn't have to pray for hours and hours and hours and hours. He didn't cut himself. He didn't jump or dance or anything. Here's what he does. In verse 36, he prays, Oh, Lord, to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God. God, would you demonstrate your power and your presence in such an incredible way that all will know that you alone are God, that you alone should be worshiped, that you alone should be followed. Let it be known that you alone are God in Israel. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Please don't miss that. Elijah's saying in this moment, God, would you work in such a way that the people will know you alone are God? But would you work in such a way that they would know that you're offering them grace and you're offering them mercy, even though they deserve judgment and even though they've been bowing to false gods and even though they've been compromising in their ways, God, would you move in such a way that they would know that you're God and that you care for them and you offer them life and you offer them hope and you offer them a future? God, would you do this? Notice what the scripture says. In verse 38, then, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones, that is a hot fire, and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. In other words, God moved in such a way that everybody on that mountain that day knew, guess what? There is only one true living God and the only worship that he is worthy of is an absolute surrender and obedience and following of him. Which brings me to the fourth thing. I want you to see man's clear declaration and we'll close. Man's clear declaration. What should you do when you realize there is one true God who reigns in heaven, who graciously works in our lives for his glory? passage began with a clear demand from God. Make up your mind. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If I am God, follow me. God's clear demand. But notice man's clear declaration, verse 39. When all the people saw it, this is God's people, they fell on their faces And they said, 
The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Please understand in this moment, at God revealing his power, at God revealing the fact that he is the true living God of heaven, at God revealing in this moment that yes, he has all power, and yes, he was offering them forgiveness. Yes, he was offering them hope and mercy and grace. When God moved in such a way, the Bible says they immediately fell on their face. This is a picture of repentance. This is a picture of humility. They knew that they were wrong, but it was also a picture of declaration as they said, the Lord alone, he is the living God. What man's declaring in this moment is this. They are declaring a rejection of what they've done and a confession of who he is. That's what's happening. The Bible tells us in this pastor scripture, I think something important. I think God is pointing us to a very powerful picture. Same God who sent fire on Mount Carmel to prove that he is the one true God and to provide an opportunity for his people to repent and return to him would, all, would, would in the future do something far greater. The same God that would demonstrate both his judgment of sin, demonstrate his power and authority over all, the same God that would demonstrate his presence to be able to offer a future and a hope is the same God who in the New Testament would send his only son Literally, he would send his only son in John chapter 3. He's the same God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. The same God that proved himself in 1 Kings 18 proved himself by sending his only son to make a way for us to be saved. The same God that proved that he is a Lord over all in 1 Kings chapter 18 through the resurrection of Christ proves that he is still Lord over all. A.W. Tozer said it this way, God being who and what he is and we being who and what we are, the only thinkable relation between us is one of full lordship on his part and complete submission on ours. I want to encourage you this week to go read the rest of the chapter. It's part of our scripture reading for the week, but notice what happens. The very next verse, the Bible tells us, not everybody bowed to worship the true God that day. The false prophets of Baal began to scatter. And the Bible says that that day, God brought a sudden judgment and justice upon them because they rejected the living God of heaven. But when God's judgment took place upon the prophets of Baal, and when God's mercy was experienced by his people that bowed in worship, at that moment, the Bible says that Elijah looked over at Ahab and said, Ahab, Get ready. The rains are coming. Elijah was there at the mountain. He prayed seven times, sending a servant to go look. And on the seventh time, the servant came back and said, I see the clouds up in the distance. For three years, there was no rain. But at the moment, people repented of sin and confessed their faith in the Lord God. And the moment that the false prophets were judged, and I say to you this morning, there are great blessings. But what stood, what stood between the drought and the rains, what stood between compromise and blessing was faith and repentance.
repentance. Many of us in our life today, we're kind of wondering where is God? It's not because he hadn't demonstrated himself, but it's simply because we haven't humbled ourselves and repented. Some of us in our life today, we're wondering in the midst of it, God, why, why are all these things going wrong in my life? And what God in the midst of it is trying to do is he's trying to draw us to himself. He's trying to bring us to that place where we quit hesitating between two opinions, where we look in that moment at the dead end and we say, we, we recognize that God is God and we worship and follow him, or we don't. The fact of the matter is, there's life, there's joy, there's blessing make up our mind come to that place of faith and surrender and say Lord you are God so this morning I want to challenge you is he the Lord of your life have you trusted in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior are you living your life for him or are you living your life like the people in 1 Kings 18 compromising there's a claim but there's very little evidence beyond that. My hope and prayer for us today is that we will recognize God's demonstrated power has been demonstrated in our life to prove himself that we might worship him and follow him. All over the building, would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I pray right now that you would just speak to our hearts, help us to know how to respond. That we respond in a way that we would make up our mind. I pray, God, that we would no longer be a double-minded man, unstable in our ways, but from this day forward, God, that it would be clear in our life, not only through our minds or through our professions, but through our actions, that you alone are the Lord of our life. I pray pray that in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.